stay open to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. You know, it's a joy to reflect on the stories. I love what Pastor Kyle led us through. That, that was a gift. So uh, thank you all for sharing. Cat, uh, Vic and Sharon, Carol, that, that was sweet. It's awesome to reflect on things like uh, student ministries and, and uh, how that has shaped in, in different forms. And uh, I love it. So people that have been involved in it, um, super thankful. Well, hey, in Acts chapter 9, what's going on? This is super important. I want to I highlight for us just a little bit of context. Uh, we're going to hear about some miracles, and we need to understand why they matter. Uh, because there were lots of miracles that happened, that the apostles, that even some of the Magnificent Seven, like Philip, that they performed, we could say, uh, that God did at their hands. But why do they matter, and why does Luke record them in different places? And I just want to let you know, credibility is a big theme in our passage. Credibility. If we see in the following context, um, the conversion of Cornelius, I'm just going to highlight something for us. We're about to see the gospel move further than it has ever gone. And so the fact that it's going to move through Peter means that God and Luke, as he's recounting this, is establishing the credibility, the authenticity of Peter and his ministry as an apostle, that that matters. I'm going to come back to that next week, but I want you to know that that is, that is the case. That's the context. Um, and it brings up a point that credibility matters. It's mattered in the Bible, and it matters today. I think about Elijah. Elijah is one of the greatest prophets, maybe Maybe Elijah and Moses were the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. And who followed Elijah's shoes? Who was the next guy in line? Well, it was Elisha. Elisha, right? Sounds almost the same, but different guy. Elisha follows Elijah. And Elisha's credibility needed to be established before he could speak for God. Elijah had been the authentic mouthpiece of God in some of the hardest times. With thousands of false prophets, Elijah was the one true prophet. And imagine how difficult that would be to discern between all the liars and then the real deal, Elijah. And so Elijah had a problem. Elijah went on up to heaven, didn't die, but was taken up to heaven. And here is Elisha, left with the responsibility of Elijah. And here's what we learn in 2 Kings, that immediately God established Elisha's credibility with a number of different miracles, a number of them. But one was he healed toxic waters. He even, he even healed a pot of stew that was poisonous. He called down judgment on some disrespectful ewes. And I'm, you know, one of my favorite stories, these two she-bears come out and maul these boys that make fun of Elisha. I mean, what, what, what does that matter other, you know, other than saying you should respect your elders, which I know a number of you in here are saying, yes, respect your elders. That's what that passage is teaching. Well, it's actually, it's actually helping us to see that Elijah represents God. He is the mouthpiece of God. When he calls down judgment on these youths, that he is speaking God's words, that he is to be believed. When, when he heals Naaman, the leper, 
We'll come back to that. He heals a man of a, of a deadly skin disease when he raises the son of that hospitable Shunammite woman that opens up a room, even puts on an addition to her house so that Elisha, as he travels commonly through her town, so that he will have a place to stay. And she feeds him. But then her son dies. And as Elisha comes through, he, heal, he uh, raises her son up. What do all those things do? They bring credibility to Elisha's ministry, that he is to be listened to just like the people, the true Israelites, listen to Elijah. You better listen to Elisha just like you listen to Elijah. Now, we have to ask the same question today. In fact, some of you are probably sitting there. Should we listen to Gabe or should we not in this message? Or when Kyle's preaching or Roger's preaching or someone else. And I think that's a good question. It's an authentic question. Or perhaps when you turn on the TV to TBN or any other channel, you should be asking, you ought to be asking, should I be listening to this person or not? There's a good chance you shouldn't. I'll just give you a hint right there. You turn on the TV and, and listen to anybody that claims to be a Christian, uh, you should be very careful. Because today we have a number of people that are health, wealth, prosperity gospel preachers. And name it and claim it. They say, hey, if you give to us, then God is going to bless you. And I'm encouraging you right now to put your hand on any part of your body right now that is not right. And I'm going to pray and God's going to heal you. Or that, that God wants you to have the most comfortable, the easiest life. And if you give to my ministry, then, then you will experience that kind of prosperity. Those are the voices of false prophets and frauds. And we should recognize them among people who are actually faithful and loyal to Jesus and exposing us to God's true word. We should recognize the difference, who we should be listening to and who we should reject. Because we live, we live in, in the same sinful world that Elijah and Elisha did. That there are people that are not praying over, that don't care about God's people, but are praying on God's people. That's the world that Elisha and Elijah lived in. They were called, they were called pagans. People worshipped at shrines. They were frauds. They were fakes. They used and abused people at those temple cult practices. And today, the same happens within health, wealth, prosperity, and name it and claim it ministries. It's very personal to me. Very personal to me. My personal testimony is this. My mom's cousin, when I was a little, little boy, was spoken over a prophet, a name it and claim it prophet and preacher that God's going to heal you from your cancer. You're not going to die. And that left my friends, her kids, my second, third cousins, with a lot of questions who were my age when their mom passed away. I've got a real problem with frauds that prey on people, make promises that God doesn't promise. I hate that. There's so many frauds. But there's a second thing that we need to look for. It's this. It's not just look out for the frauds, but look for who is faithful and who is authentic. Because we can't just be skeptical of the frauds 
we need to also look for the real deal. Who is being true to Jesus? Who is being loyal? That involves character, but it also involves, uh, it involves the mission, being faithful to the mission. And we're going to see that in Peter's life. So look at verse 31. I want to back up to verse 31. Describe the current situation. Even though the church is dealing with some of the same things we do today, who's authentic from who is a fraud, what we hear is a description of the church flourishing. Here's what that looks like. Peace. The church is built up. Fear of the Lord. When you hear that fear of the Lord, think this, obedience. That there is, an, there is an awaking of people to understand that God is calling them to follow Jesus. And they're responding. And then comfort of the Spirit. That some of their circumstances aren't changing. In fact, we're going we're gonna to hear about famine. We're going to hear about suffering. And yet God's Spirit is comforting people in the trials that they walk through. And that is encouraging the church, building the church up. Uh, you know, right now at Esbury College, there is, some are saying, an awakening and a, a revival. And we'll see, because, because any true spiritual awakening that is the Holy Spirit and not men and women trying to manipulate something is always followed by this, an obedience to God, a love for his church, it always leads to holiness, to sanctification. And that's what's happening in the church. And, and we'll see, as, as time can tell, because I pray, I pray that it is true, that there is awakening breaking out among these college students at Asbury College that spreads to our entire country, that, that shapes Jesus' mission around the globe. I pray that that's true. And we'll see if it's true by some of these authentic markers, just like this church right here experienced all over. And, and this happened in and throughout all the church. Now, this word for church is ecclesia. And, and Luke has used this word ecclesia to talk about the local church. And I, I do mean that specifically, the local church, the church in this particular city. This particular church. And right here, he talks about it, not quite the universal church, He's not talking about people who are Christians that have died, all the Christians who have existed in all of time. That would be the universal church. He's talking about the local church in lots of different places. He describes right here in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. You know, this is, this is really important because for us, when we look at this word church, sometimes we pick and choose. It's called the, the convenient application fallacy. Because Luke has talked about specific churches, and now he's starting to use the word church more broadly. Talking about the church everywhere, right? Where Peter has planted churches, where Philip has planted churches, other people, where now Saul is starting to plant churches and make disciples. And sometimes we want to apply, apply things that are talking about the universal church only to the universal church and not to the local church. And what I want us to do is to be faithful in both. That what God speaks about his church, every Christian that's ever lived, has to have some kind of application to the local church. We don't get to pick and choose, right? It's a both and. It's, we were talking about this in the prayer huddle this morning, that we're called to follow Jesus, and that is an individual commitment, just like we baptized two individual disciples last week. 
But there's also a corporate aspect to that. And right here, what we see is the corporate aspect, a description of the culture, the characteristic. And sometimes we're, we're good about making applications of how is this going to shape my faith and practice, and we're not so good about how is this going to change and shape the way that I contribute to my community? How is this going to change the way that I show up on Sunday morning so that I can bring about more peaceful relationships? How is this going to shape the way that I act or the attitudes that I have at community group? You see, sometimes we can apply things individually, but right here we get a picture of the, the church at large, I think is the best way to describe it. And it's a good picture. You know, this is a good mission report right here. And I think the best way for us to apply it is how are we contributing to these things within the church as we get this description? You know, are we cultivating peace in the church or are we more entertained by drama? And we're not walking about relationships wisely that would bring about peace and healing and restoration. Or are you investing in Christians, in your local church? Are you investing in them? That sacrificing for them, seeing them built up is a good thing. That that's a, contribu- a contribution that's worth our time. Or, or this, do you want to obey God together? I mean, I, I love it. I love it. So many people want to follow Jesus as an individual, but do you want to do that in community? There are a lot of American Christians that have said, no, I want a worship service, but I do not want to follow Jesus in community. That's not what I want out of the church. That's a part of the picture right here. And then lastly, do you believe the greatest hope for this church, that this church holds, is not the talent of its leaders or the expert programs, cutting-edge programs that it will have or the best methods of making disciples, but it is actually that the Spirit is dwelling in us. Because I believe that the greatest hope for this church to thrive over the next 55 plus years is this, that God's Spirit dwells sustains, gives life to his people. I mean, in some respects, sometimes I don't know, wow, what do we do about this decision in 2023? And sometimes I just don't know. But I have great hope that God's spirit is not going to let this church down. I trust that God's spirit is going to lead and guide and cultivate in this church all the giftings, all the resources that we are going to need to shine Jesus brightly in our community. I think that's a great picture of some of you flourishing right here in verse 31. But then we get into this. This beautiful verse flows into these two episodes of Peter. Two episodes of Peter. I'm calling this his first mission trip to encourage. Now, this is a contrast because We've seen the apostles, we've seen Philip take mission trips to different areas outside of Jerusalem, but it is to make disciples. It's to evangelize, it's to share the gospel. This is how you know that the gospel has moved out and is flourishing in these areas because Peter is now going for the primary purpose to encourage Christians. That's a worthwhile mission trip to go encourage believers. We get two, two episodes. I, I've also called this Peter's West Coast mission trip. 
because um, just because I like the Supertones and they've got great, great songs about West Coast mission trips. And most of you won't get that, and it's okay. But for me, Peter's West Coast mission trip, because he is headed west, and these are coastal towns along the Mediterranean. It's his West Coast mission trip. And the first city that he stops in is Lydda. And you're going to see a tension here. I want to draw it out right now. One is that God has a plan. Jesus has a sovereign plan for his church that he is in control, that he is orchestrating, that he is doing things that are impossible. And yet we also get the character of Peter who is discovering things who doesn't know what's going on, and yet amazing things are happening through him because there's this tension that Jesus has this awesome plan for his church, that he loves her. He's going to encourage these disciples. And Peter is just the vessel, and a lot of times he doesn't know who or what he's going to do until that moment. So Peter and a paralyzed Christian man. This is in Lydda, a coastal city along the Mediterranean. He's going to all the saints. This is an important term, the holy ones. If you write in your Bible, I would circle that one. Because that, is a, that, that should shape our view of God's people right there. This was a term that was reserved for Israel, God's holy ones. And right here, it's being applied to the disciples of Jesus to all the saints living there. This is the first mission trip to encourage believers. Now, I, I think this is super important to just see that Peter is going for encouragement because sometimes we see our role wrongly. I, I'll tell you what, I've, I've failed at this. Just, just ask my wife about this, that when we get around other Christians, whether it's at another church or a conference or community Bible study, that we need to see ourselves as encouragers primarily. And there are a couple ways that we can go wrong that Peter does a good job of being a positive example. And one is don't compare because if you compare that church to this church or your spiritual life to that person's spiritual life, it might steal your joy in Jesus. Or worse, it might steal theirs. You know, in particular, I, I get around my family. I've got some family that are Christians and some that aren't. And, and I want my, my sister who's a Christian or her, her husband who's following Jesus, I, I, want, I want their kids, my nieces and nephews, to see when Uncle Gabe comes to town, you know, that he's encouraging as he talks about their faith, their church, their denomination, what they're doing as a family. And then I'm not looking for meaningless arguments that aren't going to build up. The second thing is this, don't condemn over minor issues. What we miss as we read Acts is that Peter is going on a cross-cultural mission trip. These are very different areas than he is used to, than he grew up, that he experienced as a boy or experienced in Jerusalem as he began practicing the church. And yet he's very considerate. He doesn't bring up things that, that, that we might say are, are major issues. He doesn't condemn over minor things because his focus is this, to encourage other Christians. When you get around your family, if you have family that are Christians, encourage. Don't look for the argument, right? You know, here's a great one. Bring up the end times, you know, around your family, you know? Like, I, I don't have one family member that I think I agree with. All right, Heather, exactly. I love them. 
my mindset should be I want to encourage their faith. I don't, I don't want to try to convince them of my view. That's not my ultimate goal with my family. Okay, so right here, we hear about this man, Aeneas. He's got a big problem. He has been bedridden for eight years, unable to carry his own weight with his legs. He, he now lives. His world is a bedroom most likely shared and a bed that most likely he never gets out of, that he requires help for every meal and every time he needs to use the bathroom. That's his life. What I love seeing here, another key word, is that Peter finds Aeneas. Finds Aeneas. Right here, that's one of the first words that helps us to see that that Peter didn't go to Lydda for the purpose of healing Aeneas. He didn't even know about him. He just finds him. He just finds him. Would that you and I saw the things that we find in the relationships that we find, the neighbors, the coworkers that we quote unquote find, that we'd see them like Peter. That Peter understood that God had a plan, but he found Aeneas. Now, Luke doesn't tell us anything more about Aeneas. But then Peter begins to speak in the story, and he says very little, but he gives us a declarative statement. He declares something. He says this, Jesus heals you. Jesus heals you. Peter is merely the mouthpiece here. Because we have to ask the the question of of a good story, who? Jesus is doing the what? Healing. Whom? Does he heal? Aeneas. But that declarative statement is followed up by an imperative statement. He says this, rise, make your bed. Rise, make your bed. Two commands, get up from your bed. This man has has lain in his bed for eight years. And Peter says, Jesus heals you. This is what Jesus is doing, right? It's the prophetic voice of Peter. And get up and make your bed. Because you won't be lying in your bed anymore. You can make it. (laughs) Your bed is no longer your domicile during the daytime. You'll be done with it. You should make it. It's a good thing. Um, You know, (laughs) Aeneas has not gotten out of his bed for eight years by himself. Aeneas has not made his bed for eight years. Now, I, I know my wife thinks that I have Aeneas syndrome because I haven't made my bed for more than eight years, but paralysis is not the issue, right? These are two cruel imperatives, unless Peter is the real deal. They're as cruel as that preacher telling my mom's cousin, at 38 years old, you'll be healed of your cancer. That's fraud. But do you see that right here, Peter is the real deal? It's unfair to call out the fraud without also seeing the authentic. Because what happens? This man gets up and he makes his bed. 
What's the result right here? That people repent to Jesus. They hear the story about Aeneas. Just one story, just one miracle in Lydda that is recorded. And yet all the people hear about it and even more are turning to Jesus. There's a spiritual awakening that follows that people that were far from God are now restored to him through Jesus. Why? Because Peter is highlighted. It's not Peter who's doing this healing. It's Jesus. That Jesus gets the credit for this. That people are beginning to sing Jesus' praises from this miracle and that people are turning to him as well. But we get a second episode and it's, it's similar but different. Get ready for this. Peter Peter and a dead Christian woman, Tabitha. Tabitha dies of a sickness at a nearby coastal city named Joppa. And she has a reputation because people, out of love for her, a reciprocal love, <laughs> she's loved and cared for people so well that, that they have now gone and sought out Peter. Come to Joppa. This woman has died, and when he gets there, he hears more about her reputation, that the people are wailing, not who are paid to wail, which is, a, which is a common thing that you would pay people to come and wail at your relative's funeral, but people who are authentically wailing and, and proclaiming the noble deeds that she's done. Her virtue, how she's cared for other people, the loving acts of generosity. In that day, it was, look at the clothes that she made me. She's loved people well, and they are so sad at her untimely death. Because how good it was to be around her. Now, now we assume here, what we assume about Aeneas, that Aeneas was found, he was a Christian. And, and it's the same Right here with Tabitha, that she's a Christian. It's assumed in the story that she's one of the disciples, as all these disciples are telling this about her life. And they ask, they ask Peter to come. And so he does. And he finds all the people wailing and all this commotion. What does he do? He kicks everybody out of the room. Clear the room. And he prays privately for Tabitha. The opposite of so many miracles today that are done, right? It's like gather the biggest crowd, you know, let's have a conference, let's invite people to it. And it's a shame, right? Wolves in sheep's clothing that profess these miracles through proof on television and conferences only to take up an offering for themselves. But here's what you need to see, that Peter, just like Elisha follows Elijah, Peter is following someone in this. He's following Jesus, because Jesus has a similar but different miracle. It's when the Roman centurion comes to Jesus and says, my daughter is dead. Another one where he uses the words, he says, Talitha kumai, little girl, rise. And right here, Peter uses some of the same words. After he prays privately, he says this, he says, Tabitha, arise. In a private room, just like, just like Jesus did. He sent people out. And she opens her eyes and she sees Peter. She wakes up from her death. She sits up in the bed. Now, some people have argued, hell, well, she wasn't really dead. You know? And, and here, here's what you need to know. Um, without hospitals in first century Palestine, um, people could more easily recognize a corpse 
than today. You know, we think, oh, we're so scientific today. We know exactly when someone's dead. Here's what you need to understand. You know, most of the time we're not around people when they pass, right? Back then, people died in their homes, in a room, with other people right around them. Sometimes sleeping next to them, sometimes making a meal next to them. That's what life was like. These people knew a corpse when they saw one. Tabitha was dead. Now, Peter presents Tabitha to the people as back from the dead. And again, the same thing happens. The miracle becomes widely known. And people from Joppa and the surrounding area turn to Jesus. There's spiritual revival. People putting their faith in Jesus, repenting to him because of this miracle. Now, the big question is, how, how should we understand these two episodes? How should we understand? There are some things that we can glean, and the one is this, how it should shape our faith, that the miracles and the conversion in these two stories are Jesus' work. They're Jesus' work. Peter doesn't get the glory for them. It's very obvious in the way that Luke tells the story that this is the work of Jesus. His resource happens to be Peter. And he's an important resource. We're going to see in the next chapter how important Peter is as a resource. But there are two things that we need to understand about Jesus. That Jesus is Lord, and in these stories we see nothing is impossible for him. Jesus is Lord, and nothing is impossible. We've got, we've got one story of a man who is paralyzed, getting his strength back. Another of a woman who had died, no breath, no heartbeat, who is given life once again. Nothing is impossible for Jesus. But there's, there's a follow-up to that, that Jesus is Lord and his decisions are inscrutable. Inscrutable. Love that word. I hope you use that word today. Inscrutable. It means that we don't understand. We don't understand why the other people that were sick in Lydda, in Joppa, the other people who had died, because a lot of people died in these cities. Why just these two? Why? Because oftentimes we question that God would miraculously heal Tabitha, that he'd, he'd give her life and then heal Aeneas. Why not someone else? And, and it's our gripe. What we need to understand is this, what Luke 4.25, what Jesus says. He said, he said this, he brought up Elijah and Elisha's day. And his people were saying the same thing. Wow, Jesus, if you just did this miracle in this way and you did it over and over and over and over and over, then we'd believe you. And Jesus tells the people then in Luke 4, 25, he said, don't you remember, don't you remember Elijah, or Elijah's day? There was famine, terrible, horrible, no good drought for three years and six months. How many harvests are you missing, right, before you just before you die. 
Think about that. People that lived harvest to harvest, and they, they've missed three, maybe four harvests now, a three-year, six-month drought. And Jesus says this, there was famine in Elijah's day, but God chose to bless one widow where Elijah went and stayed with her. She never ran out of oil. One jar of oil fed Elijah for all those years. One jar of flour fed Elijah and that widow and her family for all those years. One. Now, here's the thing, what Jesus is bringing up. It was a widow who wasn't even a part of the nation of Israel. This is a foreign widow. And Jesus is making the point, God chose to be gracious to her out of all the widows that he could have. And how can you look at him and say, why didn't you do it differently? Jesus then brings up, he says, how many lepers were there in Israel during the days of Elijah and Elisha? And yet we only hear about one being healed, Naaman. And once again, Naaman isn't a part of the nation of Israel. He's actually an enemy of Israel. He only hears about Elisha's ability to heal him because in his military conquest, he's taken so many Israelites as slaves that one of his Israelite slaves says, hey, you should go talk to Elijah. And God chooses to heal Naaman of his leprosy? And the question is why? And the word that we need to understand is that Jesus can do whatever he wants. Nothing is impossible. And yet his ways are mysterious and inscrutable to us. That's what we see in these episodes. Then secondly, this, if we understand that nothing is impossible for Jesus, and yet his ways are unscrutable, they're mysterious, then what do you and I need to take away from that? That we ought to care for his people. What is Peter doing? He's going to encourage these disciples. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says of his own mission statement that I came to serve, not to be served. And what do we see Peter living out? Exactly that. That he is not preying on people, but we see his authenticity in that he is willing to pour himself out, give himself on this mission trip of his time. And when they say, hey, would you come to Joppa? He is willing to at least go. You and I, that we would be like Peter in that we care for, his, we care for Jesus' people. Now, I think there's a second application, and, and it would be this. We, I've, we've handed out this, our I3 list. And we've talked about people that are far from God, and I hope this helps you remember to pray for people that are far from God. Maybe three names you could write down. If you want to write down more, oh, you take that liberty. But we've talked about praying for these people. I think that's important. There's a second part of it, and it's this, to invest. Just like we see Peter investing in his disciples here, that you would invest in these people that you are praying for to know Jesus. Think about this. Think about the ways that you could invest in them. Number one is just to take an interest in them, to take an interest in their story. A second might be this. It might be, it might be inviting them to meet you for coffee or a meal, actually listening to them, having a conversation. Conversations, good conversations, they can be hard to come by these days. But to give someone a good conversation, 
maybe to go to a basketball game together, invite them to something, or, or go, go to their game match, whatever, performance, concert, and go with them. When you invite them to invest in them, expect to hear no, and just persist. Look for another opportunity that you can invest in them. Perhaps it's, it's uh, taking their kids, if they have them, to a park to go play. I know, I know one dad, he started a cul-de-sac hangout every other Friday night. And that became the thing in his community, how he invested in the people that he believed were on his I3 list. You use every resource in the church. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's something different. For some of you, it might be starting a, a card game you know, at the local assisted living facility. What is it for you but to invest like Peter is? Second Thessalonians tells us this, that in ask, Paul asked that God would comfort his people. But then he says, and may he establish you in his works, in his words. And so my question for you is this, what good work does God want you to do to follow Peter? You and I can look at Peter, we can read about, we can know he's legitimate. It wasn't because of the results, it wasn't because of this great revival, it was because of his love. And so next week, I want us to be thinking about this. Luke's helping us to see that Peter is authentic because Peter is about to do something, or really, God is about to do something through Peter that is going to blow past every appropriate boundary that the church had at that moment in history. And they needed to believe that God was authentically making this move and it wasn't just Peter. That's what these stories are about. And I hope you'll be here next week to hear about that, why it matters that we believe Peter because of what God is going to do through him. I want to leave you on this note, that you have an authentic ministry because Jesus died for you. He said, I'm going to sacrifice myself for you. And that you believe that, Christian. You have faith in him. You are set up for authentic ministry. No matter what people think, to actually take that step to invest in them. You need to do it no matter what people think. Because it is true. It is genuine to who Jesus is making you new in himself. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for what Peter did. And I pray that you would help us that authentic work that you're doing in and through us. I pray that you get the glory for it. I pray also, Lord, that you would help, help us to be bold as we carry that out. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.